Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. We see amazing things happening in this passage, but we, we see Jesus teaching and his compassion on display, his works on display. And so let me read just a little bit from Mark 8, 1 through 10. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have, <clears throat> I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have, been, have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone find enough bread to feed them? And then we heard just a little bit ago how that part of the passage continues on. Let me just draw your attention to several things. We could be tempted, as many, uh, as, as many are, to look at this and say, hey, uh, this is the same story we read before about the feeding of the 5,000, except for it is not. It's a different one. Critics of Scripture have tried to put these together and said this is all the same story. They got the times and the, and the places wrong and they got the numbers wrong, but it's all the same story. Couldn't be anything but the truth. So the reality is it's two different stories that happened in two different places. The first story of the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw in, in Mark 6 <clears throat> happened in the region of Galilee. And it was, uh, they fed 5,000 as opposed to this story, which happens in the region of Decapolis, and it happens to feed 4,000. Both were the numbers of the men that were fed and not uh, the women and children that were fed. So in both these cases, that number could have very easily climbed to some 20,000 people like we talked about a few weeks ago. So also departs and diverges in other ways. In the first story of the feeding of the 5,000, the primary audience and the people that were there were Jews as they gathered for the Passover and it was in, that, in a Jewish region. The primary people that were here in this region were Gentiles in a very different way. Jesus was... Uh, is about two to three months apart in his travels, and Jesus had just spent those last two or three months traveling around Gentile areas, performing miracles, doing teachings, and teaching his disciples primarily what would be the greatest lesson that they would have to know and remember and would set their path after he had ascended to heaven. What else do we see in this passage here? We see, like we said, that there was uh, 5,001, 4,000 in another. We see that in the first story of 5,000, Right? There was five loaves and two fishes. We see in this story that there were seven loaves of bread and a few fishes. I don't know how many there were, but still, both stories kind of articulate the same thing. They were able to round up some extras that people had with them, and that's about all they had. Both times, the disciples were at a loss, not necessarily to God's power or to Jesus' power. They're at a loss of, well, what do we do? How do we, how do, we do this? But what I want you to see that's also incredibly unique in the story, which is why I've, I've titled this part of it, Have the Same Mind as Christ, a Compassionate Mind, is this. In all the places throughout the Gospels that we see Jesus referred to as having compassion, it was the writers or his disciples or, or, uh, or somebody else referring to the compassion of Christ. This is the first time and the only time that we see this and in Matthew where he says, I have compassion on them. That's not any more significant other than the fact that we literally have Jesus saying, stop everything and I'm going to have compassion 
on them, not being interpreted by his actions, but him literally say, this is the right response for these people at this time to have compassion on them. We're going to see in a second that that was incredibly important. And again, it would alter the disciples' understanding of what their role and their context of their lives were going to become. But here's what we also know about that statement. We know that that statement means that we're going to suffer with people. We're going to stop and we're going to be careful of the details of people's lives. That's what the word compassion meant. Let's take for a minute just an account of who Jesus was. He was the king of all kings, the creator of everything. He was the Lord of all. And he had started the end of his life being on a ministry journey of training people, teaching people, going throughout towns and villages of synagogues. He was on a time frame that would last what we found out to be three years. He was a busy man. He had places to go. He had just spent three days teaching these people and healing disease and sickness. It was time for him to go and get on with what he had to do. And yet, what did he do? He had compassion on them. He saw the need that they had. He entered into the detail and the circumstances of their lives. And it wasn't just about his agenda of teaching. It was constantly and always about his agenda of loving and displaying the love of God for people. makes us stop and ask the question, if the king of all kings could be concerned with that, on a three-year time frame to give his very life on our behalf, and to ascend to heaven, with that much to be done, knowing that people wanted to kill him and take his life, and knowing that he had teaching to do, knowing that he was in a region of Gentiles where, according to culture, he shouldn't be, He stopped and took the time to enter into the needs of the people that he was with. Should that not speak to us? Should it not speak to us in our hurried and harried world? The way we go from this moment to next. The way our agendas and our appointments are so important. That our resources and the way they're used and spent and our willingness to dive into the difficulties of people's lives. You understand that they were with the Gentiles, correct? You understand that a, a, the rabbi's teachings of the day was you do not eat with the Gentiles. And yet here he was, not only giving them food, but partaking and providing it for them and having them sit together with those that were Jews. Here he was saying, I don't want them to collapse. Their physical state matters to me. And he dove into those difficult moments. Should we not do the same? Should we not be driven to be compassionate as Christ was compassionate? Should we not care about the critical details of the lives around us? Should we have not eyes to see that which Jesus saw? Not his own schedule, but that which was best and the best way to love somebody that was around him. Interesting what was left. You might say, well, this wasn't that much of a miracle if he only had seven baskets left. Yeah, 12 the first time. Well, first time, a, a basket was a rounded bottom and a kind of narrower top. And we could have called it a lunch pail. That's kind of what it was. You'd hold it in your hand, you'd put some things in it, and you'd carry it with you. Oh, but this basket was referred to as a hamper because it was literally big enough for a man to fit in. It was the kind of basket that Paul was let down on over the wall of Damascus. 
that we read about in Acts. There were seven of those baskets left. There was 12 of the other ones. Now, why were those baskets important? Well, because the Jews carried that type of basket with them. And the Gentiles carried the hamper type basket with them. And all around what you see is he was meeting their needs. He was providing for them in a manner that made sense to them. There was an abundance of supply in the manner in which they would see and understand. And in that instance, in that great compassion of feeding them, in the miraculous way in which he did, he said to them on this occasion the same thing he said to the Jews. And then he made sure the world knew and understood, right? The bread of life had come. And he was the bread of life to the Jews. And he was the bread of life to the Gentiles. No more walls. No more fences. No more obstacles. The word of the Lord would go out to the Jew and the Gentile. Salvation would be for both. And he made sure with the disciples sitting next to them that they would not be able to go the rest of their lives living in the culture that they lived in, acting as they would from their own culture. You had to think at any moment that, those, that the disciples were like, how long are we going to be with these dogs, these people that we're not even supposed to be around? Let them feed themselves For three days we've been stuck here. For three months we've been traveling around this region. Enough is enough. Get us away from them. We would never do something like that. (laughs) No. But those disciples, little thick-headed, they probably did. It doesn't say they did that. I made it up. But it's their culture. It's what they were taught. It's how the culture acted and responded, most certainly. And you had to think there was at least a restlessness of them. And Jesus made it clear they would spend their days taking the gospel, compassion, acts of love, and their resources to both the Jews and the Gentiles. What was the result of these miraculous actions? What was the result of all of this? We find in Matthew 15 that as a result, Matthew tells us the Gentile multitude marveled as they saw the mute speak, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. If compassion means to suffer with somebody, then it also could be said that compassion is a virtue which never forgets the details of life. Jesus looked at the crowd and he remembered what they needed. Wearsby said this of Jesus. He said, confront Jesus with a lost soul and a tired body. And his first instinct was to help. Let me read that again. Confront Jesus with a lost soul or a tired body. And his first instinct was to help. Is that ours? It's the mind of Christ. If we're going to imitate it, then we should have a compassionate mind just like his. When we see the, the hurting, the harassed, when we see those that don't know Christ, no matter what culture they're from or where they're from, those that are hurting and in desperate situations, no matter what culture or country or gender or race they come from, should we not rush in? No matter what socioeconomic class they happen to be, should we not offer our very best what we have? Notice what the disciples said. Don't get too upset at them. 
Notice what they said. How do we do this? They knew the power of God. Was this how Jesus was going to act again? I'm not sure they knew right there in that moment. But they said, what do we do? We don't have enough to feed them. Then he said, what do you have? It's the same thing he says to you and I every day. We might look at a situation and say, what am I going to do about this? It's such a big issue. What am I going to do? What am I going to do about this guy on the side of the road? What am I going to do about the woman who's been abused? What am I going to do about the marriage that's breaking up? What am I going to do about the socioeconomically depressed? What am I going to do about the mentally challenged and hurt? What am I going to do? And Jesus says the same thing to you. He says the same thing to me. What do you have? Give me what you got and watch what I'll do with it. (laughs) You got seven loaves? I'll feed 20,000 people and make sure you have seven baskets as big as a man left behind. We made some chili one day. It was left over from a a men's barbecue we had. We had a rib cook-off, and there was lots of ribs left over. And so we shredded all the meat off the bone and made some really good chili. Then we loaded up with the chili pot and went over to the Golden Gate Park just outside of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. I was working with a group of 20-somethings who said, we want to help people like us. We want to help people our same age. We want to step into people's lives that need help. But is there anybody out there that needs help? Okay, is there anybody out there? What did you just say to me? Is there anybody out there? Oh, my goodness. Let's go for a trip, boys. And so we loaded up the car, and we did not go to Beverly Hills, but we went to San Francisco. And then we took our pot of chili, and we showed up. And at that time, there was a... a a term that was used for these, these young people that were gathering in, in Haight-Ashbury area. They're called gutter punks. And they were just traveling around from city to city. And they would hang out on the streets of these different cities and party and do drugs. And, and just kind of, they were a family together. And they would hop trains in any way they could. And eventually they all made it to San Francisco. And they all made it to Golden Gate Park. And they lived there. And they all shared the food they could gather. And they shared the drugs they could gather. And they partied all night. And slept in different places during the day, and did it all over again. It would be really easy to look beyond them and really easy to look past them. But if you spent 10 minutes even talking to one of them, you'd be able to hear tragic story after tragic story of lives that were abused, of kids that were kicked to the curb by life circumstances and situations. That wasn't everybody's story. Some kids just wanted to go have a party. But so many of them. So many have been hurt in so many unique ways. So there we gathered with our pot of chili, and uh, they started coming from everywhere. Literally everywhere. They kept showing up. And I'm dishing out. I got a ladle of chili. And everybody's with me looking to go, that's not enough chili. I go, that is not enough chili. I go, how much money do you got? We thought maybe we'd grab some pizza. <laughs> They're like, we didn't come with any money. I go, well, you should have came with some money. And so we're dishing out chili. And they said, should we dish less? I'm like, we can't dish less. It takes a bowl of chili to feed somebody. I go, we'll dish out as much chili as we got, and then we'll say sorry. And I go, how about if we pray? Let's pray that God will just, that there'll be enough chili. 
And they're like, can we do that? I said, yes, we can do that. Pray that there's enough chili. And we kept dishing out chili, kept dishing out chili, kept dishing out chili, kept dishing out chili. I could say it all day because that's how long it took. We just kept dishing out chili. There was chili in the pot. We couldn't figure it out. Hundreds of people had come. They got chili in full bowls. And then we ate chili before we went home. I'm like, how did this happen? And we all sat there and in one accord began to sing worship songs in the middle of this little street corner area with cars going by because we had no other response but to praise God for what he did and thank him for allowing us to be part of such an experience. They took what they had, these 20-somethings, didn't have a lot of money. They had some leftover ribs. They made up some chili, and they said, we really want to go help somebody. And we want to tell them about Jesus. What do you have? Do you have some leftover ribs? Do you have a couple leftover dollars? Do you have a leftover sofa somewhere? What do you have? What will the Lord use? How will he use you to change and alter the course of people's lives? The homeless situation in, uh, in California right now is hitting epidemic stages. You've seen it on the news. You've read it in news articles. The last week I was there talking to some churches, and uh, the bottom line is it's all true. It's all true. I saw homeless, in place, homeless people in places I hadn't seen them before. They're now rising up on the sides of freeways and overpasses. They're making tent cities in places I never saw tent cities before. It is absolutely tragic what's happening there. It's not just the drug addicted. It's not just the mentally ill. The single largest population of homelessness that's growing in in the San Francisco Bay Area right now is mothers with their children. And I saw something and heard something that absolutely encouraged me and gave me hope. The same hope that Christ gave when he looked at at the people with compassion. The church has begun to stop pointing the finger at the government and say, what will you do about this? And instead, they've looked at the three fingers that were always pointing back at them and said, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to use our resources to step into people's lives? How are we going to use our resources to help addicts get clean? How are we going to step into our resources and help people get jobs? How are we going to create affordable housing? And so I saw some of the most unique things begin to happen. A church said, here's what we can do for today. Here's what we have. We have a large parking lot, and we have some places that we can build showers and and laundry facilities. Let's hire a security company and make sure this is a secure area so moms and their children can drive their cars in here after work and after school, and they can at least park here in safety because because they're being attacked in their cars. And so let's give them a safe place to sleep at night. And so they can sleep at night and they wake up before they go to work and they wake up before they go to school and they get to take a shower and and have a meal and and do laundry. Here's the best part. Don't miss this. That's what they did with their facility. And they say, well, this is where we can start. And now the church, the church, which is the people, the gathering, their minds are starting to go and things are starting to grow and conversations are starting to happen. Can we build housing? Can we, can we turn one of our buildings into housing? What can we do? Because they're beginning to dream the right kind of dreams, the dreams of compassion. They're beginning to say, Lord, what do we have that we can offer that you can use in people's lives? And how is it that we can tell them about who you are and the great love that you have for them? And that you have not forgotten them, not even in their distress and in their misery, that you'll provide for them. 
One whole town, it sits between two large cities on Highway 99. It's called Ripon. And from the time it gets cold, sometime in November to De- or December till sometime in March, every church in Ripon has said, our doors are open all night long. We'll have a watchman on, on hand, people from the men in the church, in each church. And those who have no place to stay, whether it's young mothers or it's homeless men or whoever it is, can walk into the church, pull up their sleeping bag and sleep in a warm building and have a a place to freshen up in the morning before they head back out into the world and grab something to eat before they go. The churches have said, here's what we have. Use it. Use it. Some churches have gathered and they took some piece of property and they said, one of the huge crises we also have is women who are in abusive relationships or have seen their marriages ripped apart and they can't afford to live off one salary. They can't afford to have housing after their marriage has ended. And so they're out on the streets. And yes, we need to offer housing, but their lives are absolutely crushed. And they've been crushed through abuse and everything else. So they took some property and they built a building on it. And they said, this will be a building for counseling, that they can receive Christian counseling and help. And they hired and they're paying for Christian counselors to do rotations in this place that they can show up and get help. Is your mind starting to race right now with what is it? What resource does Leesburg Community Church have? What resources do you have as an individual family? What has the Lord given you that you can say back to him, this problem's way too big, whatever the problem happens to be. What can I do? What can our church do? Whatever the problem is. And the Lord simply says, what? Give me what you have. Seven loaves and a few fish. Watch what I'll do. Let your mind, let your heart, let it go and let yourself be challenged by the mind of Christ to have a mind of compassion. And may God use you to change lives one at a time. We see in this, uh, in this section of passages, we see a witness. We see a witness that can be powerful, even one witness. What I want to draw your attention to is that they are in Decapolis at this time. right? This is where this miracle is taking place. In Mark 7.31, just before we get into chapter 8, it says this, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went, went through Sidon, <clears throat> down to the Sea of Galilee, into the region of Decapolis. And you're like, why is that so significant? We've already talked about being a Gentile place, right? But do you remember back in Mark 5? Remember the, the man who was healed, who had, had the demons in him that were cast out? And afterwards, he wanted to follow Jesus. He goes, I can't believe you did this for me. I want to be with you wherever you are. I want to go. And do you remember what Jesus said? Let me remind you. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord had done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now he finds himself in the beginning of eight back in the same region and there's crowds upon crowds all around him. Now make no mistake, he was doing other miracles in the region and he was traveling in the region, but he was not, right? They weren't waiting for the Messiah. They weren't, this was a Gentile area. How did the word spread so quickly of what he was doing? What were they, was it all just because of some of these miracles, even though he's traveling around from region to region? It could have been. Or was it, was a, a primary reason, could it have been that this man did what he was told to do? 
that we see that the people around him were amazed. Could it be that he was, had his life so altered by Christ, so altered by the love of God, so altered by the grace and the mercy of Jesus that he didn't keep his mouth shut? He went and shared it everywhere he could. And as they heard, they said, hey, that's the one that the guy was talking about that had all the demons cast out. You know, the guy that wouldn't shut up about Jesus. There he, I heard he's over there in that area. Let's go find him. Let's go see. And so the crowds came and the crowds came and the crowds came. When was the last time you told the story? When, when was the last time you told the story of how God changed your life? When was the last time that you couldn't be shut up? When was the last time that somebody said, would you stop talking about Jesus? No. When was the last time? May it be again. May it be soon. May it be the greatest story that your mouth ever tells. We are to live by faith, we find in verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply. Now this sigh is not a sigh like, ah, oh, here we go again, i got to tell you. This sigh was exasperation. This sigh was frustration. This sigh was a sigh of contempt. They were the religious leaders. They were the teachers. They should have known the word of the Lord. They should have taught properly the word of the Lord. They should not have been spending their time testing or demanding that they would have their way, that they would have their own personal miracles, that they would have it the way that they anticipated the Messiah coming. Oh, no, they should not have done that. So he sighed deeply. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed over to the other side. We find the parallel story told in Matthew 16 where he says this, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. As if the signs he was giving, as if the miracles he was performing, the, you know, the deaf hearing and the mute speaking and the blind seeing, as if those weren't spectacular enough. As if 20,000 people on two different occasions eating, if that wasn't spectacular enough, as if the storms being calmed, if that wasn't spectacular enough, they had to have the miracles, they had to have the evidence, they had to have the proof, they had to have the truth for themselves the way they wanted it. And so in that moment, they went to them, went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, I'll tell you what you're supposed to do. I'll tell you how you're supposed to explain yourself to us, and I'll tell you how you're supposed to represent yourself to us. And then, maybe then, we'll believe that you're the Messiah. Oh, the wickedness of those people. And yet, how often do we do it? Lord, I'll trust you if you just work the way I want you to. Lord, if you loved me, you would do this. If you were a good, good father, then you would act this way. It's just not true. The Lord will act in the manner that is absolutely best for us, in the manner that will glorify the Lord, in the manner that will glorify himself, in a manner that will give us the greatest amount of hope, in a manner that would give us the greatest understanding of his power and his authority in our life. And most usually, 
in the manner that takes us completely out of the equation. Because it's his power that does the work. It's his miraculous, majestic power that does the work. It's not by our demand or by our vision of how it'll work. Then we've had something to do with it, have we not? Oh, the Lord will do that which is best and glorifies himself the best. We are to live by faith, not by sight. Our faith will give us the sight that we need to live by. Let us be a people that live by great faith because of who our God is. Finally, we see that Jesus said, remember. Remember that Jesus will meet our needs. Disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. He just got tested. He just had them try to come against them. He just had them try to trip him up. Oh, are you kidding me? I can't believe you're doing this, right? I mean, he didn't say those words, but he, now he's in this boat with his boys that he'd been doing all this teaching with, and he just wants to talk to them, and he needs to give them a warning, and he needs to let them know how evil the days are. And so he says, hey, we're going to talk about what just happened here. And the disciples go, they discuss with one another, uh, he's talking about yeast because we have no bread. What? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? You have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear. And don't you remember? There it is. Don't you remember? And he goes on to remind them about what happened and the great provision. So the same challenge exists for us. Do you remember? last time you told the story of your salvation? I know we just mentioned that a second ago, but when was the last time you remembered it? When was the last time you remembered of a moment of one of God's great provisions in your life? When was the last time you remembered and told the story of that that moment where your marriage looked like it was going to cave in and the Lord stepped in, upheld it, and held it close and His providence prevailed? Right? When was the last time You wrote it down and shared it with somebody else. Do you realize that's why we read the word of God? To remember his great works and his great deeds and his great actions. Are you remembering? Are you remembering? When was the last time you read stories about other people's testimonies and about the the missionaries and, and long ago saints as well as the ones in our same time zone and time frame? You heard their stories of God's great provisions. When was the last time you went, to, you went to lunch with somebody, you sat down for a cup of tea, and you said, you know, Jill, I just got to hear. Tell me about the Lord's great provision in your life. I just got to hear what he's been doing. Tell the story. Remember. We're to remember what the Lord did which is how it's going to help us to walk by faith. It's how we're going to have compassion for others. It's how we're going to practice this life we're supposed to live. We need to remember and remember often. We must remember. And finally, beware of sin and false doctrine. It can quickly become part of our lives. That's what Jesus was trying to get to. Be careful, gentlemen. Be careful, because they've twisted the truth. They've twisted the doctrine. 
They're teaching things that aren't true. They've made works as opposed to my grace. They've made it more important to look good to a man than to have your heart devoted to the Lord Almighty. Be careful. Be careful of those Herodians who have said, Oh, let's live and let's live large. Let's, let's partake in all the world's delicacies and, and immoralities. As long as we achieve, as long as we climb, as long as we conquer, then we've done what is best and good. Don't buy into the sin. Don't buy into the philosophy. Don't do it. Be careful because the yeast, you become comfortable with part of it. You become comfortable with a piece of it. It begins to spread and it begins to take over the whole of your life. And pretty soon you're living for your own philosophies. And pretty soon you're twisting up the Lord's philosophies and his teachings. And pretty soon sin reigns in your life. And pretty soon you don't even care about turning for it. That you can live consistently and consecutively with sin in this hand and and the word of God in this hand as if the two don't even matter. We don't have to do that. But if we don't rid the sin from our life, if we don't rid the deceptive philosophies from our life, that's exactly what begins to happen. We become double-minded in all we do. (laughs) We try our best to serve two masters, but there's only one that can be served. This, my friends, this beloved church is the only standard It's the only measure that it's the great word of God that will convict our hearts, that will guide us, that will help us to discern and understand the cultural philosophies. We don't adhere to the culture's philosophies. Culture's philosophies are filtered through the word of God. That's the way we live. That's what we teach. And that's what we go out and proclaim. May it be nothing short of that.